That was the weakest thanks be to God I've ever heard at Rockwall Presbyterian Church. Perhaps you're not very thankful for uh, Job, at least not yet. We've, we've decided on an easy beach read for the summer. We're wading into the book of Job, and uh, with the withholding out the promise or the, the opportunity that in Job you have the opportunity to meet God in a way that you have not known him before. Right? This is the experience of Job as his story plays out. Uh, Job is righteous and, and apparently intimate with God in the beginning of the book. He undergoes immense suffering. And at the end of the book, he says, oh, I thought I knew you, but I really didn't. And this is what we're after. We're after as a community, as uh, individuals and together to be able to say at the end of the series, oh, I thought I knew God, but I really didn't. Or at least in the sense I know him better as a result of waiting through this, uh, of going through this uh, material. So just as a refresher, uh, we're on our third week. In chapters 1 and 2, God is the one uh, who initiates the dialogue with the adversary, with Satan. God is the one who si- uh, singles out Job as a topic of discussion. And uh, what's, you know, he says, have you considered my servant Job blameless and upright? Satan says, well, he's not blameless and upright for, any, for nothing. He's blameless and upright essentially because you pay him really well. And Satan raises the question, why are the righteous righteous? If you aspire to be righteous, why? Is it for the benefit you perceive that you will receive from God? Or is it for something more, something bigger, something different? Satan says, if you take away what Job has, the things you blessed him with, he's going to curse you to your face. And so in chapter 1, God permits that all, everything Job has will be taken away. He loses everything, including all of his uh, ten children. And then uh, in chapter 2, again, you have the same scene. Satan makes the same assertion. He says, if you touch his flesh, then he's going to curse you to his face. So God permits Job to be covered with sores. He resigns to the trash heap outside of the camp or outside of the city and sits in utter misery and grief, unable to comfort his body, unable to ease his grief. And at the end of chapter 2, it said that three friends had gathered to comfort him. And they sat in silence for seven days. And we noted last week that that's probably the high point of the friends' advice as they seek to give counsel to Job. Because starting today, and for uh, much of the rest of the book, this is what happens. The three friends take turns speaking. Each time, Job responds, and it goes through three cycles. So you, uh, uh, Eliphaz will speak first, Job will respond, then Bildad will speak and Job will respond, and then Zophar will speak and Job will respond. And we do that cycle three times. And what we're going to do is just take samplings from week to week of uh, a friend's speech and Job's response. And the reason we're taking a sampling is because, A, it would, um, it's to read both in their entirety would be far too much for the context of one service. And uh, B, Job is fairly repetitive. So if we deal with an aspect of one of the speeches in a certain place, and then you hit it again in your reading, you'll be equipped in how to deal with that. And that's why we're also asking you, particularly in this season, to bring your Bibles to the services, because we can't fit all the texts that we're uh, reading, or even all the places that we're bouncing around in the context of the sermon, in the worship guide. And today will be an example. You'll want to leave your Bibles open because we're going to hop all over the place to try to get a feel of what happens in uh, this dialogue. So, to, 
you know, it's not easy uh, wading into Job. You've got complicated ideas. You've got some of the biggest questions of life. And you're, you're reading them in English, which is an English translation of ancient Hebrew uh, poetry in many cases. And so you're going to read some lines, and it's just not going to make sense to you. But uh, keep chewing on it, because I think in general you will get the gist. And the way that we're going to try to approach and understand the contrast and the tension between Eliphaz and Job this morning is by asking five basic questions of each, of each speech of each thing that the person is saying. And then we're going to contrast the two. And what we're going to see is that Eliphaz and Job are actually functioning with very different views of God. Right? It's not simply that they, um, they are differing on theological points of contact. They have different conceptions of who God is. And this is one of the things that the author wants to bring uh, to bear on the people who would read Job is to struggle deeply with who is God, what is his nature and character. And so we'll see if we can't uh, learn something uh, through Eliphaz's speech and Job's response this morning. So number one, uh, we're going to go through Eliphaz's speech first. And the first question we're going to ask is, what is the problem? Right? Obviously, Job is sitting in misery. He's all uh, banged up and in deep grief. But what really is the problem? Look at the way uh, it, Eliphaz's speech opens up. Uh, we'll start in verse 2. If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Right? Seven days of silence. And now Eliphaz breaks the silence. He says, are, are you ready to listen? Yet who can keep from speaking? Somebody's got to bring clarity to what's occurring. Right? And Eliphaz thinks he's the man to do it. Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. Job, you're a man of wisdom. Your words have been helpful to many. You're the one that's off, usually offering the counsel to the suffering. Right? A little buttering up, right? Because here comes, here comes the blow to the gut. But now it has come to you, in verse 5, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. So uh, right off the bat, you're going to get a feel for who Eliphaz is. Because even as he, he begins to take up the subject with Job, and he, he, hap- he throws out the uh, token compliment, he proceeds immediately to say, we're not impressed with how you're handling the situation. Now you find yourself dismayed. Now you're the one who needs counsel, and we're going to deliver it. Now, we're still working out as uh, Eliphaz begins to speak. What is the problem? And uh, verse 7 of chapter 4 is probably the best summary of Eliphaz's theology and where he sees the heart of the problem. He says, Remember who, uh, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? Now, this is a very common statement of what we would call theologically retributive justice. In other words, if... Um, if someone is suffering, that means they've done something wrong. They're, they're suffering as a result of their sin. And that's why uh, Eliphaz says, if you're innocent, you're not going to perish. If you're upright, you're not going to be cut off. Now, what Eliphaz is demonstrating here is gross ignorance. And this is, um, Eliphaz represents to us someone who is willing to... Uh, Someone who is willing to speak confidently out of ignorance. 
Sometimes I think the church makes an Olympic sport out of speaking confidently, out of ignorance. Right now, the person who rushes in and says, I understand what's going on here, and I've got all my theological ducks in a row, and I will bring clarity to this situation. This is Eliphaz. But the author wants you to know right off the bat that Eliphaz doesn't know what he's talking about. And the way he does it is in verses 7 and 8. It says, remember, I'm sorry, in verses 6 and 7, Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? Three descriptors for those who don't have to fear, uh, be afraid or draw away from God because you're in good standing. You, you fear God. You're innocent and you're upright. And if you find yourself in that camp, you don't have to be worried. Because what are you going to get for that? You're going to get blessing. Now these three descriptions, fear of God, innocence, and uprightness, are the exact same three Hebrew words that chapter 1 and 2 have used repeatedly to describe Job's character. In other words, Eliphaz walks on the scene and says, Job, listen, you're going to be okay as long as you fear God and are committed to uprightness and innocence. But chapters 1 and 2 have gone out of their way to already tell us that Job is the paradigm. He is the pinnacle of fear of God, uprightness, and innocence. And so right off the bat, the author is cluing us in that Eliphaz, A, doesn't know what he's talking about, and B, doesn't know Job. And yet he speaks with such utter confidence and surety. You know, I I don't think we should hesitate to speak the truth in love. But my goodness, I, I think you all can think of situations in which people are, um, have so many words to communicate so little. And if we're going to learn anything uh, from Eliphaz, let us at least start by learning that when we are so confident, uh, it should be, it should be a, um, with, a da- with a significant dash, dash isn't the right word, with a lot of humility. And what's really interesting is Eliphaz's ignorance is not ignorance of the law. Most of his counsel in general is biblical up to this point. His ignorance is of Job and the situation of the context. And so because he just rushes in and says, I'm going to apply these big laws and rules to this without knowing the story, he's going to mess up. And he's not going to be a good friend. In fact, Job's going to severely criticize his friendship. But this is the problem for Eliphaz, right? This is what we've started with, or the first question we've started with. What is the problem? Eliphaz lives in a world where if you are obedient and upright and innocent, you're blessed. And if you are sinful, then you're going to be cut off and perish. And so for Eliphaz, the problem has to be that somewhere, even if Job's unaware of it, there has to be sin. This is what's caused all the suffering that's come upon him. Okay, well, if the problem for Eliphaz is Job's sin, then what is the solution? Well, Eliphaz will uh, kind of take shots at Job repeatedly. But at 5.8, he says fairly distinctly, As for me, I would see God, and to God would I commit my cause. In other words, what Eliphaz is saying is the solution here is that you repent. And you commit yourself to God and entrust yourself to his hands. That's the solution because Job's problem is that he's living in sin. Okay, so the problem is sin. The answer is repentance and drawing near to God. Sounds pretty standard biblical stuff so far. But 
there's an important way in which we get insight into uh, how Eliphaz conceives of God in the midst of how he's explaining how God works in this world. And so our third question is, what does this mean for God, for Eliphaz? What kind of God is he worshiping? What does he look at like? Well, in a very interesting place, in uh, beginning in chapter uh, 4, verse 12, look what Eliphaz says, Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake, a spirit glided past my face, the hair of my flesh stood up. Well, what's going on? Well, we don't know if Eliphaz uh, is speaking directly of a spirit of God or if he's just speaking of a dream that he's had, but he is communicating. uh, This is an ancient version of, I've received the special word of the Lord. God has spoken to me, and now I bring this word to bear upon you. And so uh, if you find yourself, perhaps, in speaking with someone who uh, really is confident that God has spoken to them in some distinct way, and you're highly doubtful that that's the case, you can say, well, Eliphaz thought he had been spoken to by God as well. But Eliphaz's vision is one that that cannot come, uh, could not have come from God. Go down to verse 17 and think about what kind of God is Eliphaz relating to. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth, between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Goodness. That's quite the description of God. If we were to put that in our terms today, essentially uh, Eliphaz is saying, uh, God is the creator. He's strong and he's powerful and he's so far removed from us that we are simply like ants. And God will destroy us when he wants to destroy us. He doesn't have trust in the things he's created, Right? He knows that the angels won't serve him ultimately faithfully, and he knows humans won't serve him ultimately faithfully, and so he can judge at any time. Why are you complaining? Right? Who are you, O ant, Job, to speak back to God who is in charge of all of this? So you start to get a feel for how Eliphaz views God. God is transcendent. We might use that, that, that term to say that he's big and he surrounds everything. But for Eliphaz, he's not imminent. He's not personal. He's not really present. He enters in and out at various times simply to accomplish his will. Well, then what kind of reaction is appropriate to this kind of God? All right. If you look at chapter 5, verse 2. Eliphaz will say, Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. Now the word vexation is, is the same Hebrew word that we would use for anger or frustration. In other words, Eliphaz is saying, Job, your temptation is going to be to become angry. But anger is an exercise of the foolish, particularly related to God. It will kill the fool. And going down a road in which you embrace anger will not be something uh, that serves you well. In fact, the language he's using is clearly a critique 
of Job's lament in chapter 3. Right before the dialogue has begun, last week we looked at chapter 3, and Job has a chapter-long lament in which he laments his birth. He says, I would prefer not to have been born. He laments living. He says, I would have preferred to be set out to the elements as an infant and die. And then he laments life. He says, what is the purpose of life if I am hedged in in suffering and giving awareness of my great suffering, but God does not intercede and there is uh, no, de- no defined purpose? What is the point of life? And if you took a step back from chapter 3, you'd essentially say, uh, Job's question is, what is the point of faith? Why believe in a God... Why serve a God who allows such suffering to come upon you or loved ones or people in general? What is the, what's the point? And this is the point that Job is struggling. Why would I continue to worship this God when, after what he's done to me? Why would I have a relationship with him? And so uh, Eliphaz is looking at Job's speech in chapter 3 and saying, Mm-mm-mm. You're going into dangerous territory, Job. You can't think about life like that. That's off the range. And your anger is going to be your undoing if you sit in this vexation. All right? Again, as we saw in 5.8, Eliphaz will say, commit your cause to God. Right? Trust in Him, and everything will be okay. And the last question I want to ask of Eliphaz is, where do you find hope? Right? If Eliphaz is saying, uh, Job, your problem is sin... And your course of remedy is repentance. And you need to uh, draw near and trust yourself to God. right? Because God is not the kind of personal God who really is that and caring about your situation. So just repent and aspire to uprightness and blamelessness. And avoid your anger. And then in the end, where do you find hope? And this is one of the oddest and funny isn't really the right word, but... If you look at the end of Eliphaz's speech at 5, beginning in verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles, and seven no evil shall touch you. Eliphaz is saying, listen, Job, the discipline of the Lord is a blessing. So let's just, you know, dry up the tears. Let's get cleaned up. Let's get back to life. Not only that, but he'll go on uh, giving this beautiful picture of what God's going to do for Job. So if you drop down to verse 24, you shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. Well, everything's missing right now. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many. Right now they're all dead. And your descendants is the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it is for your good. Now, from our perspective, we might say, yes, we believe that God is restoring all things and there's resurrection. But from Eliphaz's perspective and this this point in the canon, on what grounds does Eliphaz say that? Right? He's already spent a long time saying, Job, you're the problem. Your sin is the problem. Any hope of restoration depends on your repentance. And then at the end, cast this wildly hopeful platitude. Yet God's going to make everything okay. Well, according to Eliphaz's theology, that's not going to happen unless Job repents and pursues true uprightness. In fact, for Eliphaz, everything is dependent on Job. 
In one sense, uh, Eliphaz has been brutal to, uh, uh, to Job. All of this pain, all of this suffering, is because of your lack of uprightness. And there's a real sense in which Eliphaz exists in this place. He believes firmly in retributive justice. If you obey, you will be blessed, and if you disobey, you will be cursed. And to this point in the canon, that is the theological paradigm that has governed Deuteronomy to Proverbs. But now it's, it's being critiqued. It's being altered. It's being declared as not adequate enough, as too simple. Right? And in this, we see that Eliphaz, if he continues to live in this paradigm, he must destroy Job. Right? That's why he's been harsh. That's why Job will say in uh, the next chapter, you, you, know, you, you come to friends with the hope of receiving something helpful, and you guys are like the, the snows that melt on the mountaintops and bring water initially, and then dry up immediately as they descend the mountain. What you have offered has dried up. But Eliphaz must destroy Job because Job doesn't fit into Eliphaz's world. Eliphaz's world is obey, be blessed, disobey, be cursed. Job is being cursed for obedience. And if Job can be cursed for obedience, that means Eliphaz's whole system doesn't work. It means he doesn't, everything that he's structured his life upon isn't actually adequate, which also means that his obedience doesn't mean that he will be blessed. And God might extend grace to those who are disobedient. And Eliphaz doesn't have any capacity. Really, there's, this is, I mean, you should hear the grinding of the stones canonically, that this is such a deep and utter shift. So, in a quicker fashion, let's consider Job's response to the same uh, questions. Right? What is the problem? The problem is not Job's sin. Job knows that he has not erred. He has not sinned in any fashion, and he knows he's been declared by God himself in chapter 2 to be blameless and to have been faithful in the midst of his testing. So in, uh, in 6.4, Job names his, his trouble. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. What is Job's problem? It is God himself. It is that God has targeted Job and attacks him. And Job said, this is my dismay, that I have been singled out by God and that I have been attacked. Well, so what is the solution for Job? Look at 7.11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Where Eliphaz says the solution is to be, uh, to be very careful about God and not, to not voice your vexation, your anger, that will be undoing. Job says, you can't keep me tied down. My anguish is great. My anger is fierce. At one point, at the very beginning of 6, he says, if you weighed, in verse 2 of chapter 6, if you weighed my vexation, if you weighed my anger, right, it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. I am that enraged at what is occurring. I am that deeply in anguish. And you think I'm going to be quiet? Please. I've got plenty to say to the Almighty, and Job will do just that. And here, I want you to begin to think. Many of you become uncomfortable. I have a friend who is so deeply angry at life and at his story and at God. But he says, oh, I can't voice my anger. 
I can't voice my frustration at God. That's disrespectful. Well, have you read Job? It's one of the main points of the book. At the end, Job will be vindicated. His friends will be judged. His, judge, his friends remain a very respectful tone towards God. Job alone is the one who gets real with God and says, Oh, yes, I've got something to take up with you. So what does this teach us about God? Well, in Job's view at this point, if you look at verse 12, this is Job's view of God. He says in verse 12 of chapter 7, Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will come for me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him, and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? This is Job, who at this point has turned to speak to God. He's no longer speaking to Eliphaz. And this is one of the dramatic differences between the friends and Job. The friends throughout the book of Job will only speak about God. They will speak of him. Job is the only one who speaks to God. In the same way that you can all think of someone who who rushes in and can wax eloquent on all topics theological, and then you go to pray and they become very sheepish and don't really want to talk to God because where, where is their comfort? In talking about God. In talking about their system of faith. But when it turns to actually approaching God, Job is the only one who will do it. And when he approaches him, can you imagine getting more real? He says, who, am I a sea monster? What Job is saying in kind of an ancient way is, uh, have you not kind of uh, misappropriated my place in this world? I am not a, a monster of chaos. I'm just a human being. Why have you sing- singled me out? Why have you made me your mark? Right? Really, don't you have better things to do being God of all things than to just sit there and punish me every day? You're just waiting for me to swallow my spit to die? This is Job's vexation, which he voices before God. He says, I can't understand you, God. Why would you allow this to come upon me? Why would you make me such a a point of cruel attention? What is the point in all of this? And so Job's view of God is that he is brutal to a degree. He's fierce and he is unkind. Now, what kind of reaction is appropriate? And we already said that for Eliphaz, you can't be disrespectful, but we see Job pressing all boundaries of being respectful toward God and voicing his anger towards him. And where does Job find hope? Look at verses 6, 8 through 10. Job says, Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. For Job, his hope lies in death, in the remedy to his suffering, that his anguish would simply be relieved and that God would snuff out his life. It's a a terrible, it's a a bleak picture of what it means uh, to be in the pit of suffering. Now, if we take a step back for just a moment as we close and we say, here is Eliphaz coming in and, and speaking as if he knows God. And the author has made it quite clear that he doesn't really know God, nor does he understand the situation, nor does he know Job. 
And we have Job on the other side. And for Eliphaz, the problem is sin. And you just repent. And you trust your cause to God. And you look forward to the restoration in the future. And in that sense, does that not sound a lot like what we would say to someone in suffering? Right? Maybe there's sin you should repent. Trust God. Right? You, that's your best option. And he, he's going to bring resurrection in the midst of this somehow. That's more platitude for Eliphaz because he doesn't know what we know in terms of how the canon will unfold. But for Job, and you, you have to remember, Job is, is, the, is, is held out here as the figure who, yes, will be critiqued in a way by God at the end, but he is the person who knows God and draws near to God. And he's real with God. And he takes his anger to God. And so in terms of... Um, in terms of learning from the book of Job and drawing near to God, right? this is the challenge, at least as you move forward. Are you actually willing to be real with God in the sense that Job is? You have anger and frustration and vexation simply as being part of this world. Your option is, um, I, can, I can go to God with that because I believe that he loves me and will ultimately meet me in it. Or I can just pretend that I can handle all of this myself and bring remedy to it and that God will actually bless my efforts of remedy. You see, for Eliphaz, repentance and works precede grace. Grace is a payment for obedience. Now, Job isn't quite at this place yet, but Job signals a way forward in which no... Uh, we can rely on God's grace and go to him and be real with him. And his grace will, recede, will precede right, our obedience and repentance in many ways. For Eliphaz, Eliphaz would have no ability to process something like the story of the prodigal son. Right? The prodigal would have to repent utterly and pay everything back before he returned to the father. But as Jesus tells the story, the prodigal comes back and the father rushes down the road to embrace him before he arrives at home. And rather than simply returning home to, be, to care for the pigs, he's reinstated as the loved, beloved and, uh, and heir to the estate. The father's grace precedes the son's true repentance of what has occurred. And so it is for us. So this is it. As we begin our trek through Job, this is your one application is, do you believe in the grace of God right, to actually go to him and be real with him? To say, I am so frustrated and so vexed and so angry. Why have you made me your mark? Or why have you allowed this to happen? Why is this part of my story? And in that, to trust in the grace of God that he will meet you there. If you are unwilling to do that, make no mistake, you will have to deal with that yourself. And that's never a good road. Because you do not have the strength, nor the capacity, nor the wisdom to handle that frustration and vexation that is inside of you. Let's go to his table, presuming on that very grace. Father, we thank you uh, for Job. We thank you that you are great and kind and gracious. And we thank you that our 
our repentance, our standing with you is not dependent solely upon our obedience, but that you pursue uh, us in grace first. May we presume, presume upon that grace so that we would be willing to be real with you as Job is real with you. Would you help all of us who are gathered here this morning to voice our frustration and our vexation and our anger, uh, to wrestle with you? And in that, would you please reveal to us more of yourself? Would you give us more of yourself? Not that we can be simply uh, impressed by the experience or that we can be made greater in our own eyes, but that we would be greater lights of your glory, that we would be greater ambassadors of your grace as a result of having tasted more of you. Would you please give us that very gift as we come to your table this morning? We ask all of these things humbly in Christ's name. Amen.